Hi, and welcome to the Sports Info Solutions Baseball Podcast. I'm Mark Simon. Today we're joined by Padres broadcaster and the co-host of the Big Time Baseball Podcast, Tony Gwynn Jr. We'll also talk to SIS VP of Baseball, Bobby Scales. We'll touch on what's made Manny Machado and Eric Hosmer so good this season, the development of Hunter Green, and some shortstops that look like they're going to be players to watch. We'll kick things off with Tony Gwynn Jr., who ranked number two in defensive runs saved among outfielders from 2009 to 2011, trailing only Brett Gardner. And I began by asking him for his favorite defensive play. One of my favorite plays actually came here in Philly. I was in my first or second season with the Padres. I believe it was Polanco who was at first base. It was a bloop single kind of towards the, the left center gap. And I got to it pretty quick, but I knew I didn't have time to set my feet and get off a good throw. It was going to be more about getting rid of it as quickly as I can. So much like a, a an infielder coming in to fill the bunt, I kind of got rid of it on the run, hit Chase Headley right on the button, and we were able to throw him out and, and get out of the inning. It was it was one of my favorite plays. So your favorite play is a throw rather than a catch? It is. It is. I, I You know, I dear, especially in that run, I seem to be making a lot of diving catches, so they kind of all <laughs> blend together a little bit. But that's one that that's one play that stands out. Nice. So how has good defense played a role in the hot start by the Padres? It's played a huge part for the Padres. I mean, uh, I think it was, what, 13 consecutive games, something along with that, to start the season without an error. And with them not really being at full power offensively, nor very many guys in the lineup swinging it, maybe other than Eric Hosmer and, and Manny Machado, defense has been the key because starting pitching has been so good. And the Padres offense has been so inconsistent that they played in a lot of close games. And what you find when you watch the Padres is they don't make very many mistakes and they capitalize on all the opposing team's mistakes. And and so I, I think they sit here with what, 23 wins right, right now. A, a big reason for that is is how well they played defensively. How has Manny Machado looked at third base defensively? As he as he always does, brilliant. We made his first error of the season uh, in last night's game, but I mean, we take it for granted here in San Diego because we see it on an everyday basis. And Manny's so talented; he, he has the ability to make a lot of tough plays look routine. And so, you find yourself having to remind yourself that these aren't like normal plays that every third baseman is making. But he, he's a lot of fun to watch and. I'm glad he's on our side. Is there someone that you feel that should get more credit for his defense than he currently does on the team? Jake Cronenworth. I don't think there's a question about it. I mean, you can put him literally anywhere in the infield, and I think he he could play a gold glove caliber position, whether it's, I mean, first base, shortstop, second base. You don't have to put him at third, but you could, and he'd handle it just fine. He's a sure-handed of a defender, as I think there is on the infield. He makes every routine play, and then he'll make some that that aren't routine as well. And, you know, I, I like the consistency of his defense. In the outfield, one thing we noticed, maybe you can provide an explanation, because his defensive run safe total a little higher than we're typically used to. Did I say right that Jurickson Profar has six assists? <laughs> you you saw correct. And okay. Jurickson 
you know, for the first time in his career, took it upon himself to to really be on a regimen workout program. He went out to the Dominican and, and worked out with Fernando Tatis Jr. all offseason. And to me, that's the thing that stands out the most is his ability to change directions, his ability to be explosive out of his his defensive stance. And I think what we've forgotten about Jerickson is prior to the shoulder surgery, he had a really good arm. And so I think it's taken him. I, you know, I haven't talked to him about it. It took him to about 2021 before he was fully healthy again. And so I think what we've seen is his arm strength return, but we've also seen him a, a lot more agile in the in the outfield. And right now he's one of the best defensive left fielders in the National League. What's your favorite thing to watch on defense this, these days across the sport? And the rare occasion that the defense in the infield is aligned normal, I, I, I still love seeing a shortstop go in the hole and make that jump throw. It's one of the prettiest plays next to a center fielder going into the gap and, and, and running down a ball that, that has hit hard. But those are, those are the two plays that I, I still enjoy to watch. Is there a non-Padre whose defensive work is, is such that you particularly like watching him? Kid in St. Louis, center fielder. Harrison Bader. Excuse me, Bader. Bader, yes. Without a question, he's the he is the best, in my opinion, the best defensive outfielder in baseball. His jumps are elite. Not only are his jumps elite, I, I think his arm is 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 uber talented. And so you combine a, a an unbelievable athlete with great instincts. And he's and he's taught himself. I mean, he's had some good some good outfielders to learn from. Dexter Fowler was there for a little bit. Tommy Pham was there for a little bit. And I've seen him from his the start of his career in St. Louis to where he is now. I mean, he's gonna have he, there's gonna be it's gonna be tough to wrestle gold gloves away from him on a yearly basis. Yep, he's been fantastic. He rates well by our defensive run save numbers as well. So on our last episode, we had Ryan Spielborg, who does games for uh, Root Sports Colorado, and I asked him what he had taken away from the first month of the season, and he said, hitting's hard. So I would ask you, (laughs) what has allowed Manny Machado and Eric Hosmer to basically solve the sport hitting-wise while their teammates and much of the rest of the sport is getting crushed? Well, I'll start with Manny. Manny, as I said, is is super talented. He's, he's, he's as talented as anybody in baseball. And I think the thing that he has done this year and to, I make that point because his talent allows him to go outside the zone and still hit pitches hard. And I think, you know, when you're doing that in the game of baseball percentages are just, you know, against you. And I think what he's done, at least in the early going, he's not chasing, like you got to get it in that rectangle box that is on TV and if you put it anywhere in that box, he's going to hit it hard. I mean, he's got – I'm pretty positive his exit velocity is is the highest in baseball on, on a consistent basis. And I just think he's more efficient. He's not chasing. He's taking his walk. He's willing to, to pass the baton to the next guy as opposed to trying to do it himself. And that's paid big dividends. And, and for Hosmer, there's been, a, I, I think, a – a change in his body a little bit. He seems to be in a, a good place health-wise, but there's also been a change in, in his swing a little bit. I think he is making an effort to stay on his backside a little bit longer, but more importantly, stay inside the baseball. Him, him and Michael Radar, the hit Padres hitting coach, have really clicked 
And, you know, without getting too complicated, they're, they're talking angles to different things. And it's really helped him. He, he's been he's been as consistent as, as anyone in the league this year. I think he's still second in the league in hitting. So these guys are these two guys have really carried the load offensively for the Padres. Why is the rest of the sport getting crushed? I, a, there's a couple of reasons. I think pitching is obviously really good. Right. And, and and the execution at the top of the zone is is the new thing. I still think there's some stubbornness in terms of trying to get this launch angle and, and, and trying to make it work on these pitches that are top of the zone. It's just it's just tough. But I also think we could be in 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 store for a transition here. If these if the baseballs are here to stay, I think that that there's going to be a recalculation on, on what what works, what teams want offensively. Because right now, the numbers that we had in terms of exit velocity, launch angle, aren't getting over the fence like they once were. Now, all of a sudden, you have a different swing path. You're looking for guys that hit the ball on the line a little bit more. That's going to change how teams move moving forward. And I think right now the struggle is – you're kind of in the middle of a transition. The ball isn't jumping like it was. So hitting the ball in the air isn't necessarily conducive. And you've got these pitchers that are running it up there from 97 to 100 pretty consistently. And so I just think we're at a rough spot in terms of that and and offensively. But I think eventually it'll turn. And the defenses have certainly been pretty good too. Three other quick things yeah. for you. One, why are the home road splits Petco versus road games for the Padres so I guess, strange at this point. I haven't seen them. How strange are they? The Padres, the OPS at Padres home games combined both teams is 646, which ranks like 28th, if I'm not mistaken. I don't have the the road game numbers in front of me, but it's not close. It's considerably better than that. Yeah, well, I I think, hey, that's kind of been the history of Petco Park, right? I think you go to that yard and it used to be a combination of the air and how big the stadium was. Now they brought the walls in now for, for, you know, a little bit. And I think again, the baseball matters. There's no doubt in my mind that the baseball is not traveling the way it has in the past. And I think, you know, typically in, in my dad's era, you hit a ball at night and you don't hit it good in that Marine layer, the ball's just not going to go nowhere. And I think we've gotten back at that baseball that, we're using this year seems to be back into that kind of air. So you got to hit it to get it out of Petco Park. There's no cheapies there except during daytime. Two questions to close. Uh, Mackenzie Gore, how good can he be? Uh, he can be great. I mean, and I, and I truly mean that. I think it has so much. He's shown so much in his struggles, I think, that make me even more of a believer. I mean, he he had to go through it from 2020 through the 2021 season he was one of those guys that's really struggled with the pandemic in terms of not having that season, in terms of being put, you know, in, in that kind of alternate site that they had. He didn't thrive in it. And then the following year, he really struggled. Mechanically, there were some things off. And so him and Ruben Niebla got together before the offseason or during the offseason once he got the job. He really worked on a lot of the things that Ruben asked him to work on. And from day one in spring training, he he has been everything I think they thought when they drafted him with their number one pick. He just continues to get better. Everything that has been asked of him, he's done and some. And then yesterday, piggybacking 
he comes in and gives three shutout innings. I, I just think he's only getting better as he gives more confidence out there. He's been very impressive. Another person has very, been very impressive, Max Scherzer. In your career, you went five for nine with four walks against him. You saw the early version of him. I did want to ask you, batting against one pitcher, how were you able to solve him, and uh, how impressed have you been with his, his career performance? First of all, Max is, is, is one of the strongest competitors I've ever played against, ever played with. I played with him briefly in, in Washington, but... I think early on he was different, right? He he didn't have the slider working like he does now. He didn't have as good of a changeup. He, he threw really hard. He threw harder at that time. And for me, he was around the plate most of the time. So I could I could get to the fastball. That wasn't an issue. And I could see, you know, his changeup and his slider out of his hand real well. So he didn't affect me. But then I, I have to admit, I faced him when he was in Detroit. And it, the, most of those outs that are in there came at that point as he started to figure it out. So, uh, yeah, Max is is is, is going to go down as, as one of the best to do it. It's cool that you're able to say that you hit so well against him. Tony Gwynn Jr., thank you for taking the time to join us. We'll enjoy your work on the Padres broadcast this year. I appreciate you, Mark. Thanks for having me. We've gotten used to the current generation of best defensive shortstops in baseball. Guys like Andrelton Simmons, Carlos Correa, Javi Baez, and Brandon Crawford but there are some new names coming. We don't need to tell you about Wander Franco, but let's talk about a few others. We'll start with Jeremy Pena. The Astros knew that when they let Correa go that they had someone very good waiting in the minor leagues. Thus far, Pena hasn't disappointed. He's been very effective making plays to his glove side and turning double plays. Bench coach Joe Espada. Jeremy has shown elite defensive skills, quick first step with smooth and natural infield actions to both his left and right, demonstrate good decision-making capabilities, which will keep him at shortstop for a long-term future. In Los Angeles, an early season injury to David Fletcher forced the Angels to turn to the guy that they call Squid to play shortstop, a favorite of manager Joe Madden, Andrew Velasquez. What impresses me most about the way Squid plays defense is how quick and smooth and accurate his arm is. Uh, he's, he's just, he's never in a hurry. He's got this internal clock about him. I know that Dog is a man's best friend. Squid is a pitcher's best friend. <laughs> in Chicago, Nico Horner has made his mark as a solid utility man who had great numbers at second base. But this year, pressed into action at shortstop, he's looked like a pro. And in Baltimore, the Orioles' D seems to have improved a bit since last season. The Orioles have given shortstop to Jorge Mateo, and he's been very impressive, especially at turning double plays. This is Baltimore manager Brandon Hyde. He's got great footwork, so he's always able to get in his body in position to make a, a strong throw. He gets the ball quickly. He's got really good arm strength and gets the, gets the ball to the second baseman extremely fast, as well as when there, we, we have an opportunity to turn one from the other end. The second baseman, who was usually Odor, has got an extremely strong arm, and then Mateo's got such quick feet, such quick hands, and a strong arm that we're converting a lot of double plays. So look out, Carlos, Javi, Brandon, Andrelton. There might be someone coming for your gold gloves and Fielding Bible Awards at year's end. Joined by our VP of Baseball, Bobby Scales, for his regular segment as we dig a little deeper on baseball topics. Tony Gwynn Jr., our guest today. I know that you have a story about his dad that you would like to share, so start with that. Yeah, I played against, played against Junior for a long time. He's a little bit younger than me, but we played against each other quite a bit in the minor leagues. And, but yeah, so drafted in 1999, I was. And I was drafted by the, by the Padres. And 
play through that 99 short season and then go to spring training. My very first spring training, 2000, Peoria, Arizona. I couldn't wait to get out there because, you know, you just, you just, you know, your first spring training, you're so excited. And the setup in Peoria at the time, I don't know what it's like now. I mean, so many years on, but one of the good things they had, they had the minor league side and the major league side all under the same roof. Obviously, the major league side was divided and it was really nice over there. And the minor league side was bare bones as it should be. It's a minor league side, but they forgot a hallway to get the big league guys to the cafeteria without going through the minor league clubhouse. So, I mean, it was every single day we saw Trevor Hoffman, we saw Ryan Klesko, we saw Bruce Bochy, we saw Tim Flannelly, who's the third base coach there at the time. They, they all had to literally walk through the minor league clubhouse to get to the cafeteria. And so obviously all the big boys are coming through. And that, that was really, really cool because it just made them real. Cause when you're that far away from the big leagues, you, you think it's just like, it's a fairy tale and it's like, you know, la la land. But there was one day. So the way it was set up was they had the minor league cages were way down on the back, on the back end of the property. You know, it was the last thing on the property was the minor league batting cages and the, the half field for the minor league side, which is where a lot of the infielders get their work done. Cause you don't need an outfield. So the deal was is you could you could hit in the major league cages, which were right next to the cafeteria. You could hit in the major league cages, but the second a big leaguer got in there, you had to clear out whether it was non-roster invite number 89 or it was Tony Gwynn. So what we used to do is we used to, you know, get the me and me and my roommate used to get the early bus, the early van from the hotel. And the early van is usually meant for guys who are hurt or getting getting some type of rehab or getting some type of treatment on something so they can participate in the day. Well, we would get there early because I wanted to get there and, and get in the big league cages and then and then and then be able to get my routine in and clear out before the big leaguers got there. So I wouldn't have to walk to like field Z, which just felt like it was a mile away with all your gear just to hit early in the morning. Now, this is in the days where you got to the field at like 530 and you were in the cage by 615. That's what it was. And that's what, you know, that's what, you know, the big league guys did too. So sure enough, one day my roommate didn't want to go. I was like, all right, he slept in for a little bit longer. And I felt kind of some trepidation about leaving my roommate. It's like, you don't leave your wingman in the hotel room, but I left them there and I got on the early van and I got there and I just started hitting balls off the tee myself. And sure enough, the first guy out of the big league clubhouse, and I think it was the second to last year playing was Tony Gwynn. So he comes around with a cup of coffee, his bat, and and batting gloves and all that. And he's, I start picking up the balls and, you know, he goes, Hey kid, what are you doing? And I'm like, what, wait, what? I'm, I'm leaving. You know, the, you know, the, the rule is I me, mean, you know, as soon as guys like yourself come in here, we gotta, you know, we gotta leave. And so he was like, uh, uh-uh. uh. he goes, and he, he says, stay your ass in here. Let's hit. I was like, okay. I, you know, at this point I'm like, listen, Tony Gwynn just told me that, that we're going to hit. And so I'm going to hit. And if I get in trouble, then I get in trouble. So sure enough, I mean, He's putting balls on the tee for me and talking to me about my swing and my approach and this, that, and the other. And I'm like, this is unbelievable. Like I couldn't even like hit because I was just trying to, I wasn't starstruck, but I was trying to just absorb every word of what he's saying. This dude's first ballot hall of fame or just unbelievable human, great dude. And it, it, it was awesome. I mean, he hit, I mean, I actually, he didn't even hit any balls. I hit for like 20 minutes and he's putting balls on the tee for me, trying to, you know, get to know me and talk through my swing and things that I'm thinking about when I'm hitting and things like that. I mean, I essentially had a 20 minute hitting lesson with one of the greatest hitters to ever walk the face of the earth. And 
finally, one of the minor league coaches who was in major league camp assisting, you know, a lot of times they'll do that before the numbers get trimmed down. He was like, he's like, scales, what are you doing in here? I was like, as I just pointed at Tony and Tony goes, he goes, Hey, he's all right. Don't worry about it. So, (laughs) so, I mean, that was one of the, the highlights, quite frankly, of my career to have a guy and, and, you know, we only had one other little conversation after that, but just to have that experience and, and just, it taught me so much, I guess, just about him. Right. I mean, he, he didn't care that I was in the minor leagues. He didn't care that, you know, probably he wasn't supposed to be in there. He was just another guy in the cage and he just wanted to, to learn about me and learn about how I hit and things of that nature. It was really, really, really cool for me. So that was, that's my Tony Gwynn spring training batting lesson story, I guess. I feel like that's a really good foreshadowing of his future as a uh, college baseball coach. So to move along and talk about the topics that we wanted to touch on today, we got three. One is Hunter Green. Two is player bats. And then three is the defensive run save leader at the moment. We have a connection to. So let's start with Hunter Green. Seven and a third no hit innings against the Pirates the other day. A game the Reds lost one nothing. 118 pitches. They let him go. He threw 99 miles an hour. They threw a lot of sliders. What was your biggest takeaway from this start? Well, you know, listen, not having done a, a completely deep dive into his entire season, I just with a young man whose arm is that good. Now, get, uh, granted, I'm getting ready to contradict myself. Big league hitters, if you get behind an account, they're going to hit fastballs because that's what they do. There's a reason you get out of the minor leagues and there's a reason you stay in the big leagues as a hitter is because you can hit a heater no matter how hard it is. But this his fastball is elite. The, the only problem, I think, is what, what we're seeing with him right now. He's one in six with a six. Now, granted, we don't really like wins and losses, I guess, and we don't necessarily love the ERA, but the the, the fifth is, in, is the six and a half as well. He's getting There's two things. Number one, he's getting hurt by the long ball. I mean, he's giving up a league high 11 homers. And then you also look at where those pitches are in the zone. If you do a little homework, they're all, they're all center cut. And what that tells me, if you look further, is if you look at his walk rate, he's walking a boatload of people at a much higher rate than you would anticipate, especially given his minor league control numbers too. So he's getting behind the count a lot and he's not locating his fastball. And that's a recipe for disaster, no matter how, how good your stuff is. And, and I just... I guess the slider was working that day, or they had a you know pretty a pretty significant game plan with what they were trying to do. But to throw sixty five of them in a hundred eighteen pitch outing, I don't know. I'm not going to second guess them. They have a lot more information, and they know the young man. They dealt with him all the entire his entire career, so they know him a lot better than I do. But it just seems it just seems like there's some simple stuff. Like if there's a way for him to find the zone more, I think he's going to have a lot more success. And let's be honest, that team is challenged offensively as well. So. You know, that start was just, it's kind of like a a snapshot and a microcosm of his entire season. It's just really, it's just a really odd start to be that good, give up a no hitter. I will give them credit. They let him go and they've let him go in a lot of his starts too. One thing I will say is it's going to be really interesting to see what they do with him as far as the innings count. You know, he's coming off, you know, he was hurt two years ago, I believe with an elbow and then I think his his career high in, in innings pitched is uh, what is it 106 and a third last year between two levels in the Cincinnati system and he's already at, he's already at a third of that you know in the season so it's going to be interesting what they do with him as far as a pitch count or a innings count innings limit I should say uh, as they move forward but it, it just it just struck me as being very as just being the whole start and his entire start to the season being really odd but I think a lot of it goes back to. Uh, his ability to 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 dominate the zone with his fastball first, and then and then work off the other things. He's 22 years old. He's gonna get it. Everything I know about this young man, I don't know him. I know people that do, and know people that know him very well. Wildly intelligent young man. Very just 
just great mentality, tremendous 80 makeup, and he'll figure it out because his stuff is that good. And he's got the mentality and the intelligence to do so. But it's just a very odd start to the season and an odd start his last time out. How good can he be? I think sky's the limit. I mean, his stuff is tremendous. I think the one thing you worry about is the health. And, you know, he's a he's a large, he's a big kid. He's a big, he's a large young man. I think hopefully they'll take care of him. They'll take care of him because they're going to. Hopefully you're going to see some skips in there and you'll see some times where his turn is probably going to land on an off day and they'll probably skip him and, and things of that nature. Nolan Arenado changed bats this offseason. This came up on Sunday Night Baseball. As the story says, in games, he is using the same counterweight bat that Paul Goldschmidt has adopted. It's a custom-made Mariucci nicknamed the Hockey Puck because it has a bulb at the end of the handle. It allows the hitter to have an inch longer and ounce heavier bat without changing its balance or how it feels to swing. And I was curious, player insight on this, what kind of relationship you had with your bat and how often you might have switched it up? I'd never switched. Okay. Uh, and that's another, that's another interesting story. So I, 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 when I got out of college, the first thing, the hardest thing you have to do is going from whether it's high school or college, you're an amateur using aluminum bats, right? The hardest thing you have to do is figure out what bat best suits what you do and how you feel. So I had another dilemma in that I was a switch hitter. So my first bat was a C271, which was a very standard choice of hitters back in the late 90s, early 2000s when I came through. That same uh, two spring trainings later, right? When I when I was with the Padres still, I was in a double A game. And I think the team, the big league team was on the road. Phil Nevin stayed back to get multiple at bats in, in the games as they will do. They'll they'll hit on the double A field and then they'll hit on the triple A field and they'll get one at bat at inning. Guys will leave that a day like that with you know eight, nine at bats. So he left, Phil left two of his bats outside in the, at the, at the game when he went into the, to the clubhouse. And so I picked it up and it was a 35 inch, 33 ounce M two fifty three, which is an extremely skinny barrel. It's a medium sized handle with a skinny barrel. And I picked it up. It was way too big. I choked up probably about an inch and a half on it. And I proceeded to hit the hardest ball I hit in that entire year with that bat in a, in a game situation. So from that point forward, that was probably 2004. I never used a never bat. I use that model my entire career, not. And so some guys, I wanted the same. I, well, I'll say this. I wanted the same exact feel in my hand 100% of the time. I wanted, there's too many variables in trying to hit a baseball for there to be variability in your bat. And so the one thing I wanted to take out of the equation was the variability of the feel in my hand. I was maniacal about if I ordered 34 and a half, 32 and a half, I didn't want a bat that was 34 and a half. 33. I didn't want a bat that was 34 and a half, 31.8. I wanted to be 32 and a half as close to it as possible. So I knew exactly what I was working with. Everybody's different. You have some guys that switch at bats, switch bats during at bats. You have after at bats, you have some guys that stay with it for a week. Some guys that go very radical, some guys that feel like you need a different feel in your hand. So it is all over the map. The one thing I will say is this, the one thing I'm a big golfer and you won't see guys at the top of the of the professional, even a, a very good amateur, those guys are all getting fitted for their equipment, right? And one thing that I haven't, I don't understand about us is, is that the most important implement, the most important thing to offensive baseball before you get to the plate is your bat and your relationship with it. And I don't understand why more guys aren't getting fitted for their bats. Now, I know Marucci, and it's funny, you said that Marucci has developed a bat fitting studio, I believe, at their headquarters. There's a couple, there's one or two other companies that are doing the same thing. These guys are, they're, they're doing 
assessments as as to how how hard you swing the bat. You're doing assessments as to you know our your physical like your arm length and 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 strength and how you use your lower half. They're putting all of these things into an equation that end up giving you the optimal bat for you and your swing. I think guys are more guys are going to go to that. I think more people need to go to that because, like I said, you won't. Phil Mickelson is not or probably a bad example right now, but Justin Thomas in insert name of golfer here. Their stuff is dialed into them and only them. Why aren't our bats dialed into that particular guy and that particular guy only? I've never, I've never quite understood that. And so, I think we're at a point where guys have that opportunity and have the technology to do it. I think more guys will take advantage of that. Nolan Arenado last year couldn't hit a, hit a fastball for anything. That one of the reasons that he made the adjustment. And this year, as we've seen, he is totally crushing the ball. One other thing related to bats. Why would, and this is a stat that we track, why would Trey Turner lap the field in broken bats the last two seasons? We count that we've seen 30, which is way more than anybody else. I would, the first question I would have is, is he getting attacked more, with more fastballs in? That's my question. There's two, there's typically two times when guys break bats. If you get blown up inside by a fastball in, or if you're getting a steady diet of, of off speed uh, away from you and you're out in front and you're catching a lot of balls off the end of the bat. Okay. That's, that's the first question. The second question is if that, if you look, if you dive into his heat map and where he's getting pitched and where he's contacting the baseball, if that's, if neither one of those is the case, is there any indication that he's got an injury somewhere that is causing his bat to, to slow down more so than normal? Because he's still a young man, if I'm not mistaken, he's still on the right side of thirty. So he should be in his he should be in his athletic peak. You know, there's other guys you mentioned. We talked about Nelson Cruz before we got on the air, and Nelson's forty something. <laughs> so yeah. there, there's some there, there's some regression to be had with your bat speed at that point in your career. But where where Trey Turner is, uh, having not dove into the heat maps or the numbers uh, or what he's doing against the fastball, I'd be interested to see what that actually looks like. Cool. All right. And then the last topic is leader, the MLB leader in defensive runs saved. I like this as I look at the leaderboard today. Tommy Edmond is first, and then Cabrian Hayes and Christian Walker are tied for second. And I feel like, all right, it's only 35-ish games into the season. Like, those are those are legit guys. Like there's no there's no quibbling with that top three at the moment. But you have a personal connection to Tommy Edmond. I was just wondering if you could share it. Yeah, Tommy, it's it's funny. So when I was at the University of Michigan, my sophomore and junior year, his dad, John Sr., was our volunteer assistant coach on our baseball team. He had played small college baseball, and he was actually in grad school for mathematics, an advanced degree in mathematics. And Coach Edmund was unbelievable. I mean, just a great family. Tommy was a baby. I think all, I think John, little John, and then Tommy, and then he's got, he's got a sister. I believe her name's Elise. I hope that's correct. And his wife, great family. They were awesome. I mean, they were they were part of who we were. They were part of Michigan baseball family, and we we won the Big Ten tournament my my sophomore year, and our big we won the Big Ten outright my sophomore year, and he was part of that team. And just to see those knuckleheads run around, and then to see Tommy Edmond as what he's turned into, unbelievable. It's just absolutely unbelievable. I actually did a camp. I played in Lake Elsinore in 2001 in the minor leagues, and at that point, Coach Edmond had moved on, and he was a high school coach at a at a very prestigious high school in San Diego area. So we actually on an off day went down there, me and my roommate, Chris Rojas, who's the pitching coach at Hofstra now. We went down there and did a camp for him and spent the day with him. What a what a great experience. And 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 you know, the kids were still young and they were running around. And now, you know, that fa- whole family, I know, I know John is has worked was working with the Minnesota Twins. And I know that his daughter has, has worked with this Cardinals, I believe, and she's off doing something else outside the baseball industry now. And then and then to have Tommy 
turn into the major league that he's turned into both offensively and defensively. We like to hit here too. I know we're a defensive <laughs> metric company, but we like to score runs, but to, to lead that, to be leading the league in, in DRS right now is, is phenomenal. And then also key to key with the pirates, you know, I was with the pirates the last four years and, and to see what he's turned into. We used to have a, it was like a joke in, inside the organization. If Brian made an error. It was clearly the field's fault. So a kid caught everything. He's unbelievable. But, but Tommy, I, I'm so happy for him, that young man. And his family, what just just tremendous people couldn't happen to a better guy. Tommy and Cabrian, both uh, previous guests. Yes, by the way, his sister's name is in fact Elise. See, uh, there you go, Bobby. Bobby Scales, thanks for joining us. We'll see you in two weeks. Always. And this wraps up this week's episode for Tony Gwynn Jr., Bobby Scales, and our producer Justin Stein. I'm Mark Simon. Thank you for listening to the Sports Info Solutions Baseball Podcast. Thank you for tuning in to the SIS Baseball Podcast. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. If you have any questions, email the show at mark at sportsinfosolutions.com or tweet us at sportsinfo underscore SIS.